Welcome to Meta Talks. This podcast is brought to you by Meta. We support startups, industry and government with sustainable technology-driven innovation. Here you will hear from amazing individuals on topics around startups, innovation, sustainability and dive deeper into industries like aerospace or energy. Welcome to Meta Talks. I'm your host, Xenia, and today's episode is about AI, artificial intelligence, and business. I'm joined by Jean-Luc Amaro, the co-founder of AI Academy and the co-author of Zero to AI, a handy guide for getting to grips with AI and how it all works. Jean-Luc teaches artificial intelligence to people without a tech background, and he's worked with companies like P&G, Merck, and Total, among others. I'm excited to have Gianluca here to share some practical use cases and AI project examples. We're also talking about what AI can and cannot do for your organization, when it's best to deploy this technology and how to go about it, and also a little bit about the startup perspective and sustainability, which is obviously so important. So tune in and enjoy the show. Hi, Gianluca. Thank you for joining this episode of Meta Talks. Really excited to have you here to talk a little bit about AI and particularly AI in the business setting. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So maybe to kick off, I'd love to hear about your background, what you studied, where you were working before, and how you got started in this world of AI. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So I I didn't start off by studying computer science or AI. I'm actually an energy engineer. So what I studied is, you know, how to build turbines and engines and this kind of stuff, solar panels, wind turbines. Then I won a scholarship that allowed me to fly to Silicon Valley and stay there and study there and work there. And this was something, it was a program funded by the Italian Minister of, for Economic Development. So the idea was to take some individuals from Italy, ship them there, and then have us learn everything about that place and then come back and kind of give back to our country. And this was in 2015 when AI was booming at the time. Um, it was really easy to absorb all that all the fire, all that energy from these people that were building the, the, the really first AI models that were actually working, you know? Um, and so I got passionate about it and I started learning. I started networking with people in Silicon Valley. So when I came back to Italy, for me, it was just obvious that I had to try to teach what I've, what I've learned there. And so I started the, giving these workshops where I would take a bunch of people and just trying to explain them what is AI, uh, why this is the moment to invest in this technology. What does it mean for them? What they can actually build with it? And that slowly turned from a little project that I had with some friends, turned into the company that I run now, which is called AI Academy. And I've always had this angle in my education, which is that I don't want to teach AI to technical people. So I don't want to teach you know, the computer scientist how to code neural networks. Because I think that that's not what matters today if you want to bring AI to the industry, I teach AI to business people, so to marketeers, to executives, to even just, you know, a UX designer who needs to design the UX for an AI product. They, all these people need to understand 
the you know the, the basic concepts of artificial intelligence so that they can bring this technology within their industry and that's what i've always been doing and that's what i keep doing because i think that that's the real value try to involve very different set of people in in this in this world yeah and i think democratizing ai knowledge is so so important and pretty cool that you decided to after having spent time in Silicon Valley to come back to Europe, stay here, because I think, uh, you know, people like you and, and people to train others on AI, what it is, what it can do, is so important on this side of the world, where the U.S. is probably a lot more advanced. No, I would say that it's, it's not about the U.S. I would say it's more about Silicon Valley, period. Like the U.S. in general, they're a little bit further, but... You know, Europe has a lot of interesting things happening as well. We have a lot of research centers that are really good, especially in the UK, actually, but also in France, also in Italy. One of the first self-driving cars that has ever been built was built in Parma, which is a small town in the northeast of Italy. I think the main difference is in Silicon Valley, everything is so much more condensed and focused. You can literally go to Starbucks and start talking about AI with a friend and you will have a bunch of people just joining the conversation because they're, they're very concentrated in that area. And this allows all these companies and all these professionals to network and and it grows much faster, right? Whereas if you come to Europe, you have small little centers of excellence that it's harder to make all these connections. It's harder to make them network. It's harder to connect, you know, the people with the money, the venture capitalists, with the startups, with the corporations that need the, the, the technology and maybe they're going to acquire these startups, with the talents in the universities. So I will say that, you know, it's Silicon Valley is really the bubble. It's really the outlier. The rest of the world, U.S. included, it's trying to catch up with them. But I wouldn't say that it, the U.S. in general, it's much further than uh, further up than Europe. Uh, Europe has a lot of good stuff. We just need to, you know, find a way to, to connect all the dots and, and, and make this grow as fast as Silicon Valley is. That's true. Those are really good points. And do you think the media plays a role in this? As in, you know, when there's a big fundraising round in Silicon Valley or some new technology coming out, it's all over the news. And like you say, you know, some small startup in Parma doesn't really get that that limelight. Absolutely. The media has a big role in this. I think in two ways. One is what you just said. So when there is a new AI model launched by some Silicon Valley startup, you know, OpenAI is an example when they release their uh, new language model. They are, first of all, they're really good at marketing themselves. So they make these blog posts where they show all the potential of this technology and the media just sucks it all off and, and becomes huge. Uh, whereas in, in Europe, I feel like we're especially tech companies are less good at marketing their tech advancements, let's say. That's just a fact, I think. Uh, and so that's one part of it, the story. The other part of the story is about misinformation. So AI, especially AI, in ten, in all technologies, is really hard to communicate it to people that are not in tech. But AI especially, because we have all this knowledge about you know, Terminator and all these movies. So a lot of people, when they hear AI, they think about these robots that are going to kill all of us. And it's just not great. And if you're in Silicon Valley and you hear these things, then again, you go to Starbucks and you're going to meet someone who's going to explain you that AI is not about, you know, building, killing robots. It's about something else. It's about learning from data. It's about data-driven decision-making. Whereas if you fly to Europe and you hear from media that AI is going to kill all of us, it's really hard to find that counterpart that actually is an expert in AI and, and is going to explain you, hey, no, you know, 
it's not that dangerous. This is not what AI is today. AI is something that you can use for your business. We come back to the to the fact that the experts in in this technology uh, in Europe are very scattered, whereas in Silicon Valley they're very concentrated, and that's really what motivated me to come back to Europe and try to build more awareness, try to make people understand actually what is AI, what can you do with it, why is it important for you, why does it matter if you are a company that sells I don't know diapers. One of my biggest clients makes diapers, okay, and they're investing in AI. Why? And so that, that was the message I was trying to give. Because in Silicon Valley, you learn it naturally just by going to Starbucks and talk, talking to people. In Europe, you have to work for it. And I'm trying to make it easier for people to understand. A hundred percent. And it's, yeah, it's just two completely different worlds. And so following up on what you just said, I guess it'd be great for our listeners to hear from you because you also, you know, you wrote the book, uh, you are co-author of A Zero to AI. What is AI and, and what are the actual real applications of AI in the industry today? Uh, and maybe you could give a few examples and from various sectors. Sure. So the question, what is AI? It's a very hard one to answer because what I feel is that the, the, goalpost for what is AI, what is not AI changes over time. I, I have a funny story that in the 60s, when they built one of the first pocket calculators, people called it AI. They said, oh my God, this thing can do calculations for me. And it's super quick and it's super cheap and it's super small. It's AI. And today, if I give you a calculator, you're like, you know, this has nothing to do with AI. Of course. It's changed over time. It exactly. changes over time. Exactly. So what I call AI today in, you know, maybe Six months, people are going to be like, oh, you know, that, that's outdated. That's just basic technology. And that comes down to the fact that we associate AI with something magical, something that kind of hits us and like, oh, my God, I didn't know a computer could do this. And that's not, I think, a good definition. <laughs> okay. So I'll tell you what is my definition of AI. This is what has been working for me. A lot of researchers maybe are not don't agree with me. Some people do. But this works for me and works for the industry. To me, AI is a piece of software, first of all. It is software that it's solving a problem autonomously. So I have a problem as a human being. I don't know how to do something. I, know I don't know how to teach a computer to drive a car. And AI is a piece of software that learns how to drive a car for me. So today, 99% of the successful AI applications are based on a set of technologies called machine learning. It's a set of techniques that allow computers to learn from data. So the concept is pretty simple. You want to teach a computer how to drive a car. Cool. Just get enough data of real humans driving a car. And instead of explaining a computer how to do it, you have these machine learning algorithms that are going to figure out how to drive a car by looking at footage, looking at videos, look at different kinds of different sources of data of how humans do that. And then the computer is going to learn from it. And that's the beauty of it, because there's a lot of problems that we don't know how to program computers to, to solve, right? It's super hard to explain a computer how you drive a car. If I ask you, hey, while you're driving, why did you steer the steering wheel exactly by 15 degrees? You're not going to be able to answer me. But if you use machine learning, computers are going to learn it by themselves. And that is the key difference between modern AI and traditional software. And the same concept can be applied to a lot of different problems. Self-driving cars is the most simple one to make people understand because everybody has an idea of what driving means and everybody has heard at least about self-driving cars. But the idea of learning from data 
can actually be applied to a lot of different cases. And I'm going to give you a couple uh, that are pretty simple to understand and I actually really enjoy. Uh, one is in agriculture. So there's this company, in, it's a very small farm in Japan. They had a problem. They had all these cucumbers. They were cultivating cucumbers and they had to sort them based on their freshness, quality, uh, size, shape, color, all these things. And they were doing it by hand. So there was a woman that was spending, it was like a family-owned business. So the, the, there was the father who was just picking all them up from the, from the field. And then the mother of this family was just sorting them. And she was spending all this time sorting them by hand, up to eight hours a day. So what they did was they recognized that they could use AI to learn from her how to sort these cucumbers. So how to understand if a cucumber is high quality or low quality and everything in between. And the system learned from these pictures how to classify these cucumbers and they automated this process. So as you understand, a lot of people think AI, Terminator, self-driving cars, all this complex technology. Here we're talking about sorting cucumbers. But it has a real business impact, you know? It sounds pretty simple. You take a picture of something and a computer decides, you know, what quality this cucumber has, but it makes a massive difference for the small farm. It sounds so useful. Yeah, right? And you can apply it to a million different cases. Like I'm talking about cucumbers, the easiest thing is just to, you know, shift it to another product like, uh, I know, apples or something like this. But imagine if you have a factory, you're building some something, whatever, some product, let's say a toy, and you want to identify which toys have defects. You can do the same thing. You can take images of toys with defects and toys that are actually good to go, good to be sold. And you can train an AI model to recognize the two. So that you automatically, uh, you know, kick out the the ones that are not working properly, and you can apply it. This is just uh, these are cases of physical products, but I want to talk a little bit about some business applications that are a little bit more, uh, you know, based on just pure data. An example is something they've done for a consumer goods company. They had this problem. They said, "Hey, you know, we sell products all throughout Italy, and we have a lot of stores. We they have like forty thousand stores. How do we find out which stores?" We should focus on with our promotions. What are the ones that deserve more promotions? What are the ones that are fine without promotions? And that's that's a big problem, you know? And if you take a human being, if you take a marketing expert, and you make this person look at 40,000 stores and the data coming from all these stores, it's going to drive this person crazy. You just can't do that. Whereas what we did is just we took this data, we fed it to a machine learning algorithm. This algorithm learned from history what worked and what didn't, what promotions were good in a specific kind of store in a region of the country, what promotions did not work in the region of the country. And it just gave us back so much knowledge. And what was super interesting is a small anecdote is that we validated this model by, uh, by looking at the model recommendations in the area next to their office. So all these are all supermarkets that they know. And they were like, oh yeah, it makes sense because I always see a lot of queue in front of the supermarket. So maybe that promotion makes more sense. So it, it made sense to people, but imagine if we had to do the same over 40,000 stores in all Italy, you will have to hire, you know, experts in every country, in every little town, every it's little city. It's not scalable. You cannot do yeah. that, right? And so AI has this big power of scale and data-driven decision-making that can be applied to any sort of industry. It's, I think any industry has some application where they are data-rich, we have a lot of data, and we're taking data-driven decisions can bring a lot of value. When you find cases like this, loss of data and data-driven decision-making can be an asset, AI has most likely some opportunity to give you value. 
A hundred percent. I agree with that. And those are some really useful examples of how others, you know, across industries can really apply AI in, in their business as well. So I guess it, it has room, whatever sector you work in. But I'm actually curious about something. There was this MMC Ventures report, I think back in 2019, that said that 40% of AI startups in Europe don't actually use AI. <laughs> and I think that, that <laughs> that's not very surprising, right? Because everybody wants to say, I'm an AI startup and I use AI and I have them, you know, it's magic and I have the secret sauce. I think that fuels other organizations to start thinking, everyone else is using it. I need to start using it in my organization. I'm just going to plug it somewhere. Yeah. What's wrong with that line of thinking? Is that like, the wrong line of thinking? And, and you know, what would be your recommendation for them to, to actually use it properly? How should they approach it? Yeah. So let me address first the 40% of startups don't use AI. And then I'm going to go uh, to the recommendations. So when I read these statistics, I'm, I would really love just to understand what is it actually these companies are doing then? Because uh, some companies definitely, especially in 2019, when there was the big AI hype are definitely lying. So they use, you know, some very simple if then kind of, you know, decision tree. And then they say, I use AI because AI sells, AI gives you VC money, AI brings you in the news. That's definitely a part of it. But I think there's also a part of these companies, they use some old machine learning models, some not cutting edge machine learning models. And people are like, oh, you're just using that stuff. It's, it's you know, 10 years old. You're not using the latest neural networks. Therefore, it's not AI. And I, I kind of disagree with this, with this approach because technology is evolving super fast. AI is evolving like at an insane speed. What is possible today was a dream a year ago. But if we keep saying that the technology from one year ago is not AI anymore, because now we have something cooler, then we go back to that definition that I was talking about before, where AI is just something that looks cool, you know? So it's 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 hard to to define what is and what is not AI. But that being said, if we go to the your second quest, your second point, which is what are the recommendations for companies that need to decide whether they're using AI or not? I always say, unless you're doing research, because if you're doing research, you just there's a strong focus on the technology itself, right? But unless you're doing that, if you do business, so if the reason why you're investing in AI is because you want to bring some business result, then the most important thing is the business outcome that you're trying to, to get from this application. So that's the start of any project. Is there business value in this? Because I use AI and therefore I'm going to have PR. It's not a business value. It was maybe, maybe it is if you are really desperate for VC money, <laughs> you need to go on TechCrunch. But it, if you're a company that is established and is trying to do something that makes sense, I use AI and therefore it's cool. It's not enough of a value proposition. You need to find something actually solving a business problem. And right now when I do projects, it's funny because as I gain more experienced, more experience, I always spend less time coding and more and more time making sure that the value proposition, that the business value is clear and it's validated, it makes sense, it fits in the company strategy, it fits in what the customers are looking for. It needs to be a solid business case. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, so once you have a you know, clear business value, you need to think about, are we sure that AI, machine learning are the right tools to deliver this business value? Can we do it in some simple software? And by all means, if there's a simpler solution to your business problem, go for it. AI has become 
very easy to apply. I wouldn't say very easy. Okay, let me let me you know <laughs> let me let me rephrase that. As we can let's say more simple, more democratic to use, but it's still a new technology, right? So if you have some simpler, some more tested, some more you know consolidated technology to use, go for it. But if you actually answer yes to the question, is AI the right tool for this business to solve this business problem? Then I will say you have some, probably some very strong opportunity to build something very interesting because there, there are some problems that I think you cannot solve with technology that is not AI. Some problems that, you know, are just not a good fit for traditional software. Self-driving cars, again, is just that's an obvious one because how, how can you build a self-driving car with traditional software? You just cannot do that. But there are a lot of other ones. The example of the uh, marketing application for that consumer goods company that I was talking about that's, a, that's another example. They have a problem, very strong business problem. Where do we do our promotions and what kind of promotions do we do? And this problem does not have a, another solution that is not AI. You cannot solve that problem with traditional software. You cannot solve it with gut feeling, you know? That's how they've been doing it for like 30 or 40 years. And it has worked for sure, but it's not optimized, you know? And so in that case, strong business problem and AI is the right tool to address that business problem. These are the two things you need to think about. Yeah, the promotions example is really, really clear-cut AI use case. And like you say, start with the problem first, yes. not the other way around. Absolutely. So let's say they found the problem. The organization has identified the issue. AI can help. I want to talk about implementation and kickstarting a project. Yes. So once you identify this challenge that AI can help solve, how do you go about actually using the technology? And I guess my question is about, do you buy it? Do you build it yourself? And what do you need besides a large amount of data? Yeah, so this is actually, I think, where a lot of companies are today. Two years ago, I had to talk a lot about, you know, AI is just, it's not just hype. You need to think about the business problem. Today, it's a bit more clear and the real challenges are implementation. So, Let's talk about this. This is very important. First of all, I think there are some cases where you have no options. The promotion example, that's really hard to buy that technology because it's something that has to be very customized to your business needs. If you sell wine or biscuits or diapers, it's, you're going to need different data to make this work. And you're probably going to need different models. You're going to run different promotions. And in that case, you need your data, first of all, and you need data scientists who are actually going to look at your data and build your model, period. You can also use some external data. That's, that's something I think it's pretty important that companies usually forget. You can mix, for instance, your internal sales data with demographics about your country that you can get from... Uh, you know, the websites of your governments. There's a lot of open data about this. So you can mix and match external and internal data, but it's it's going to be pretty much your model, right? There are some cases where you have more, let's say a more general application, something that is not very specific. It's not a very specific pain that you have where you can think about buying that technology instead of building it. And so how do we go about this? In my experience and in my opinion, buying is always the preferred solution, especially if you're still in experimentation phase. If that product, if that uh, feature that you're building that is AI-based becomes 
a key asset of your business, then you want to slowly move away from buying and going into building your own. Let me maybe do an example. So it's going to be you know easier to understand. Let's make this example. It was a client I had some years ago. It was a pharmaceutical company. And they had this idea. They wanted to build an app uh, that was going to work as support for the therapy of these patients. You're talking about infertility treatments. So it's very, you know, it's not just a physical problem. It's also an emotional problem, right? You have this couple that is trying to have a baby and they, they can't. So it's, it's really stressful. And then hopefully after these few months of therapy, you know, all these hormones, it's really it's really hard on, on the woman, especially because he has to, she is the one that is taking these hormones in, in this specific case that we're talking about. But in the, for the couple in general, it's, it's really hard. And so they were trying to build an app that will help these people emotionally through the, through the process. And so the concept was the following. Let's not judge the concept, okay? Let's just assume that, you know, the concept is good. You have an app and every day you take a selfie with this app, you're either smiling or you have a sad face. And based on that, the app is going to give you some recommendations. If you're happy, it's going to tell you, that's great, no worry, you're going to have a baby, you know, soon, it's going to be amazing. If you're sad, maybe it's going to give you, I don't know, like five exercises to, you know, bring your mood up or something like this, okay? So this is the concept. And the AI part of it is we need to, from a selfie, so from a picture of your face, we need to understand your mood, your emotions, okay? So that's what we need. We need an algorithm, takes a picture as an input, as an output, it gives us the emotions that you're feeling. It sounds pretty creepy, and there are companies that are using it in a very creepy way, but I think it was not creepy the way that we were using it at least. So then we're going to talk about ethics of, this, of these applications. But let's, <laughs> let's, course, yes. <laughs> let's roll with this. Let's roll with this. Okay, this was the, the, the idea. And they were like, okay, let's contact a consulting company and let's ask how much it costs to build this application. And I was like, well, wait a minute. This is a general problem. We're not the only ones that want to infer emotions from a selfie, right? It's a problem that a lot of companies want to solve. So let's take something from some other company. I think we bought the technology from IBM or Microsoft. And let's build a small prototype and let's test it out. Because it's, don't have to take for granted that people are going to want this technology. I mean, it's just an assumption that people are going to like this. Right? You just don't know. Yeah, you, just you just don't know. Don't know. And if you tell people, hey, you know, this, this app is going to give you tips and recommendations if you're sad... You're like, yeah, sure. I mean, it makes sense. I want to have tips and recommendations if I'm sad. But then you actually need to build it and show these people how it works to have honest feedback. So I, I still remember we had this the meeting at like 9 a.m. in the morning. And I told these people, hey, give me until after lunch. And then I'm going to show you something. And they're like, okay, just Jaluga, go ahead. And so I quickly made an account on, the, I think it was the Microsoft Cloud I quickly activated that API, so this technology that you can just rent, and I quickly built a small interface that looked like an app. It was a website, but it just looked like an app. It felt like an app. And after lunch, so it was Italian lunch, so something like 3 p.m., okay, we had, uh, we had a prototype, and it worked. And so we went with this prototype to some, uh, some, some patients, and we told these people, hey, you know, we built something try it out. And I hard-coded five sentences for happy face and five tips that I just found on the internet for, uh, you know, sad face. And the feedback was pretty unanimous, was do not even try to make me use this thing. I'm already stressed enough. I don't want to take selfies and have an app tell me what to do. 
I'm not surprised. You're not surprised, right? Not surprised at all. <laughs> you know, you're not surprised. But we had to test it out. Uh, we had to test it out because, you know, the, they, they have done some market studies where people wanted to have more, you know, daily support on their therapy. And so we thought, you know, how can we do this? And we had this idea and we wanted to test it out. And imagine if we didn't buy that technology. Imagine if we went for a build approach. We would have flashed hundreds of thousands of euros to build a super pro app and build these algorithms. It would have been an insane waste of money for something nobody wanted. But by buying that technology, and buying, I mean, like, probably one cent every hundred pictures or something like this, I think now that this technology costs $1.50 every thousand images, something like this, it's very, very cheap. I was able to build a prototype in like five hours and test it out and have the most honest feedback that we could get, which again, I was not surprised either, <laughs> if I had to be honest, but it had to be tested. Uh, a lot of ideas, they seem stupid, but then you, you're not into the, when you actually have the problem, you, you have a different perspective of it, right? And so you actually need to try it out. And in this case, it, it, it really works. But now let's assume, let's, let's make this assumption that actually people love the product. Let's assume that that was a huge value for the, for the patient. And so now we have this app built using some technology we bought that all our patients are using. Cool. What happens if Microsoft tomorrow decides not to sell that technology anymore? We have a big issue. Then it's over for you, no? It's over. You need to switch to somebody else, but maybe you don't find someone that works as good. You don't own it, right? So that's a huge liability. And there have been cases, there was one case of a startup called Smite. They were doing AI-based moderation on forums. So basically, you know, you post a picture and if that picture has pornographic content or violent content, they will use this AI, they will flag it and take it down immediately. Okay? That was what they were doing. A lot of people bought this technology from them like Zendesk is an example of a big company that bought this technology from them. One day, Twitter bought Smide and they shut it down. And a lot of companies from one day to another didn't have moderation anymore. So you could suddenly post whatever you wanted on this on this platform because they didn't have the, the AI moderation thing. You understand the liability that you expose yourself to by buying this technology is huge. So usually what I say is, let's start with buying and let's see where we go, because this allows us to basically invest almost no money and be super fast and and you know get feedback, the kind of feedback that we we got with the pharmaceutical company. And then we'll see where this goes. If it turns out that this has a lot of value and becomes a very important asset for your company, let's slowly try to switch to our own solution. Maybe you can also improve it, because you know these companies build general technology. Yeah, Microsoft in Google, they're all awesome AI companies, but. They usually are good at general applications, but when you want to bring it to your own niche, maybe you can also have better performances by customizing, you know? So I always say buy first and then eventually build later. That's my mantra. <laughs> That's a good mantra. Yeah. Test first, see if it's worth investing in and then go from there. I think that's an excellent recommendation. To flip things around a little bit. So we're talking about organizations with a lot of money to spend and AI is just one of the many technologies that they already use. I want to kind of look at it from a startup perspective. So you're a startup, you're, you, you've got a founder and you want you have an AI idea and you want to get started. What do you need to, to start? I can imagine that, you know, AI requires 
a lot of, you know, a large infrastructure, a lot of funding and very specific skill sets among employees to to really make it a success. Maybe not so important in the very, very early days, but for the long term. Yeah. So it's super fun, honestly, to, to think about AI startup because there are so many different variables and I feel like it's it's actually a, a fun challenge, you know, to to find your your path to growth. So I think uh, what I always say when it comes to AI startups is try to find what's your leverage, what's your value leverage. Like why is your AI startup a great company? Why should people invest in it? Is it because of your technology? Is it because you have the best algorithm out there? Is it because you have some data asset that is unique and nobody else has it? Or is it because of your application? Is it because maybe you found some niche where nobody has used AI before? Which one of the three it is? Or maybe it's, it's, it's you know, a mix of these things. And based on that, then you know where you need to invest and you know how you have to set up your business model and you need to know also how to pitch it to investors. And you need to know also who's probably going to acquire you, okay? Because if, let's assume that your value is the technology. You put your hands on some cutting-edge AI algorithms that some researcher has been developing. That's the case of DeepMind, you know? DeepMind is, is the AI research branch of Google. And that was a startup based in Cambridge. So they've been acquired by Google for, I think, 500 million pounds or something like this. They were a research company. They were a, an AI startup that was doing pure research. Their asset was a, a team of 30 people that were the best in a very specific kind of algorithms called reinforcement learning. That's it. So if your value is the, is the algorithms, that, that's what you have to focus on. And then you need to you know, invest in the, in, in the talents. That's, that's really your key asset, the people that actually know how to use this technology. And your limitation is, first of all, getting the right talent, because today there's a war for talent out there. But it's also budget, because most of the times, you know, powerful AI algorithms need a lot of, as, as you mentioned, computing power, a lot of infrastructure, complex infrastructure. And so that's going to be an issue. But if you know that that's your leverage, then you know how to pitch your company, basically. And you know why people are going to acquire you. Google is probably going to acquire you because they need your talents. They need your cutting-edge technology or Microsoft or IBM, whatever. Okay? So that could be one case. Second case is if you have some proprietary data that is very unique. And there are some examples of companies like this. Let me think about one. Uh, one case can be uh, Square. So, you know, Square, it, in Europe, not a lot of people know this company because it just sells in the US. It's a payments app, right? Exactly. But they started off with uh, a little, it was a little Square, actually, <laughs> that you could plug into your phone and it allow you to get card payments. So let's say that I have, you know, a small, I make a garage sale and I'm selling, you know, my used clothes or something like this and I want to accept credit card payments. Square will just give me the little tag that I can plug into my uh, my phone and people can pay for it. And then they evolved to having some point of sale solutions. So, you know, when you pay with your credit card with these ugly black boxes with these numbers that just look very old, they had a very fancy product with, you know, a square, <laughs> a square space, a square form. And, and you could just put your card there and then they had on the back end some analytics and stuff. Well, this company had data for all the transactions of these small businesses. So imagine you have a, you know, a restaurant and you use Square as a point of sale solution. Then you have all the transactions that this restaurant has ever done. That's a huge asset. And so they thought, okay, what can I do with this? And they used AI 
to analyze this data and make a system that would allow them in 24 hours to evaluate whether a, a small business can get a loan or not. So they started giving loans to small businesses in 24 hours. So imagine you have a restaurant and you need 50,000 euros to buy a new oven and you know renovate the interiors and all that stuff. 50,000 euros, if you go to a bank today and ask 50K, they're probably not going to do it because, you know, just the due diligence, it takes so much time and so much effort and the return for them is so low, they're just not, just not going to do it. Instead, if you were a square customer, you just can apply for a loan. Their AI algorithms are going to evaluate your history, your revenues, all your transactions. And the next day, either you get a no or you get 50K in your bank account. Isn't it great? But at least you know really fast. You get a response almost immediately. Exactly, with a very low interest rate as well. Because they, don't need, they didn't need to invest you know, manpower in deciding whether you need uh, the loan or not. They don't have to pay you know, some people to just go look at your data. They have this AI algorithm that you know, right away just tells you yes or no. And then the next day you have the money. This is great, but their asset was the data. And that's what they needed to protect. I actually, I talked to their head of data science and he told me what kind of algorithm they use. They use some very basic algorithm because it's not a very complex problem to solve, right? The asset is the data. And then there's the last kind of application where your asset is that you actually found a good niche. And maybe you're, maybe let's say you're building some AI technology applied uh, on top of other people's data. So maybe let's say you sell to corporates, you need to get their data, then you have some AI model that you developed and then you give them some value back and your value is really the niche that you found. Well, in that case, it's a little bit less defensive because I can you know, get into the same industry. If you don't have a very good technology, I can probably build something as good as yours. And if you don't have some very, very valuable data asset, I can probably build the same data asset as well. And that becomes like a more of a, let's say, traditional a software company if your value is just the niche that you're finding. So then it's just about, you know, scaling fast. But if you know what is your asset, algorithms, data, or the, the, the actual application, you found a really good niche that is not served yet, then you know where to invest. Then you know where to focus on, uh, whether to focus on talents, whether to focus on, you know, how to value this data as much as you, as you possibly can, or whether to you know, grow fast because it's a niche that you found. It's still, you know, a greenfield. You don't need to, you know, gain market share before everybody else. But these are the, the three different options that I found. And if you know where you stand, then you know how to plan for it, how to sell it and how to budget for the future. Definitely. And those are some really good examples. And yeah, I think that advice is applicable to pretty much any startup. You have to know what your value is and you have to focus on that. Yeah. And that's it. Absolutely. So something I also want to talk about, you mentioned DeepMind. So mm -hmm. I think over the last decade, AI has come a really long way. And, you know, like you were saying about the calculator in the 60s, you know, and where we are now, AI is constantly changing. There's always something new. We've got, you know, AlphaGo now by DeepMind. We've got OpenAI, which is the leading research lab out in Silicon Valley. We've got Tesla using AI, which is not very surprising. Self-driving cars, like we mentioned. What do you think is next for AI you know, in terms of breakthroughs that we can expect over the next five, 10 years, but also more specifically for business, where is it untapped? Like what could organizations be using AI for that maybe they're not using it for yet? 
Yes. So this is a very good question. Uh, let me split it into two. One is the companies that you mentioned. So DeepMind, Tesla, OpenAI, this kind of stuff. And one is traditional organizations. By traditional organizations, I mean both uh, small and medium enterprises, but also big companies that are not tech companies, like in, let's say, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, or you know these kind of brands. So the first ones, the tech companies. What is happening today, it's very interesting because there's some kind of AI applications that are becoming always more and more democratic, so cheaper to build, faster to build, and it's just, just great. But the cutting-edge stuff that these companies are doing is always becoming less and less democratic. An example is OpenAI. It's just, it's a perfect example. They started off as an independent, no-profit AI research lab. But soon, their models became so sophisticated and so big in terms of the, the size of these neural networks, which basically means how much computing power they needed to train. Their data, the data they were using, became so huge. I'm talking about terabytes of text that they scraped from the internet that training one model costed tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, AI research is a lot of trial and error. So you may end up, you know, training 100 models and 99 of them are just useless, or maybe 100, 100% of them are useless. And then you just wasted a bunch of money in literally in electricity, you know, just going out of the window. And then there's an environmental impact there we, we can talk about later. So OpenAI had just one option, which is to partner up with big corporation that provided the money. That's what they did. They partnered up with Microsoft. And Microsoft is providing them with their computing, like supercomputing clusters, so they can train their AI models without basically dying, without bleeding out all this money. And that's what actually DeepMind has done as well, if you think about it. DeepMind was acquired by Google, and Google is providing them with the infrastructure, their massive data centers, and now used by DeepMind to train their models. So as AI becomes more sophisticated, you always need more money, more data, more everything, basically, okay? It has become a scale issue. How much data I have? How big are my neural networks? how much I can train, actually, because to train these models, you need a lot of computing power again. So that's that's one side of the story. The other side of the story, so traditional organizations like Coca-Cola or uh, McDonald's, or IKEA, whatever, really, traditional organizations or even smaller companies, they don't need to train these super fancy AI models. They just don't. Most of the times, these companies, they have some business problems they have a pretty simple, straightforward AI solution. I'm talking about models that I can train on my laptop, okay? And I've done it, actually, you know? A lot, I think, you know, uh, probably, let's say, 70% of the models that I've trained for these companies have been trained on my laptop, and that's it. Sometimes you need to basically, to maybe make, get a more, you know, sophisticated server somewhere because you just want to be faster, and instead of taking two days to make the training, it's going to take you, like, six hours or something like this. But that, nothing more than this. So traditional organizations shouldn't focus on the infrastructure, the, the computing power and all that stuff. They should focus, I think, on two things. One we already talked about, which is finding very strong business cases. Some applications that are really going to bring value to the organization. And the second one is in having an infrastructure that is not massive. It's not you know a lot of servers, a lot of GPUs, a lot of data, but that is accessible. A huge issue that these companies have is that they're just not set for fast iteration. I know about a company in Italy, they hired a big corporation. They hired 
tens of data scientists very early on, like 2016, 2017. And most of them quit their job within six months because it was so hard for them to work. Because imagine if you're a data scientist and you have you have an, a project, like, oh, you know, let me see if I can use this data to make a forecast on, I don't know, on... Let's take the, let's take the project that I told about before. Okay, uh, where should I make promotions for uh, for my company? And to get the data, I need to ask IT. IT doesn't want to give me the data. I need to go to the legal department. The legal department is gonna make a whole big two months research on the laws whether I can use that data or not. And then IT doesn't want to give me the data because there's a problem of incentives there. If you build some software, is it gonna be your project or my project? You're IT. You're data science, but you know. Ah. Yes. You know the usual, the usual process, and uh, yeah, that's that's how corporates are, right? That's one of the challenges they face. They have really long turnaround times, yeah. the timelines, the processes. That's not surprising at all. Exactly, but in the context of AI, it's unfortunate to say, but I have to say this: like, if you're a data scientist and you know how to build these things, everybody wants you. Companies are hungry for AI talent. So if you don't allow me to have fun at my job, if you don't allow me to do my job, it's going to go work for Google and they're going to pay me a lot of money. <laughs> that's it. You know, I'm going to work for a startup. I'm going to pay me a lot of money and that's it. So if you are Coca-Cola and you want me to work for you, you need to create an environment where I can thrive and I actually do my job relaxed and not having to face all these you know, legal problems, governance problems. I mean, by all means, it's important to make sure that you're not, you know, breaking any privacy policy or any, you know, legal requirements that you have around the data. But if your company, it's not set up in a way that makes it easy for me to actually get the data in my laptop and work on it because somebody else is taking care of all these things, then I'm just going to get frustrated and I'm going to quit. That's what happened to the company. And I'm sure that that's what's happening to a lot of other companies. So companies should work on how to streamline the processes to build these AI prototypes, to build these AI projects so that they can do innovation fast, they can iterate fast, and they can retain all these talents. You said it. We have a variety of different listeners tuning into MetaTalks. So startups, corporates, government. So I think these are some really interesting insights for them to hear. So thank you. So I wanted to close with one really important question for all of us, I guess, is that, you know, we have this challenge of climate change and sustainability is at the forefront of all industries at the moment and on all of our anxious minds, I guess. What role can, or it already is maybe, AI play in the circular economy? And, you know, how can it help with things like climate change? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question because I feel like AI is helping in a way, but it's also a part of the problem. Let's talk about the part of the problem first because that's the easy one. We already talked about it before. Training AI models consumes a lot of energy. And a lot of this energy, usually it's just wasted meaning that you train your model and maybe your algorithm, you want to improve it. And so then you're going to train another model with another algorithm and then you're going to just waste the energy out of the window. And that has been a big issue. And actually, there was a case of an AI ethics researcher at Google called Timnit Gebru who wrote a paper about uh, this problem related to you know Google's use of AI and their environmental impact. And she was actually kicked out from Google right after. There's a lot of controversies around this this case. But it, it is a big problem and it's a, it's a sour spot for, for these companies. They know that they are 
polluting the world by training these massive AI models. The environmental cost is pretty high. That's the problem. There's also a flip side, which is there's a lot of research on how to use AI to, to fight climate change. Again, AI is really good at crunching a big amount of data and finding you know, data-driven solutions to problems. So I just want to give you a very you know, simple example. If you are uh, an energy provider and you have a mix of renewable resources and traditional you know, power generation, so let's say you have solar panels and you have you know, big engines burning fuel. Well, ideally, you want to use all solar panels, right? But it's really hard to guarantee that you're always going to have solar energy. Maybe there's a big cloud going over the sun and for two hours, you're not going to be able to produce energy. So that's pretty much a forecasting problem. If you're able at any point in time to forecast in the future how much solar energy you're going to produce, then you're gonna, it's going to be much easier for you to balance out what your, your output in terms of renewable resources and traditional resources. That's going to help you a lot. And well, guess what? AI is really good at making predictions based on data. So you can use AI to make all these predictions about renewable resources and trying to integrate them uh, better in, in, the, in the grid. That's just one very, it's the simplest example I can think of. But in general, any problem that require, that can have a data-driven solution, AI can help. And there's a lot of these problems in, within the climate change macro problem, right? Because climate change is a sum of different problems that we, are, uh, that we are creating. And some of these definitely have AI solutions. And there's a lot of research around this topic. And I'm actually really excited about it because there's also a bunch of VCs that are investing in this. So I think in the next... I would say five years, but I will try to you know shrink it down because we're we're in a rush. We need to solve it, you know, fast. Definitely. In, within the next few years, we're gonna see a lot of startups making big progress using AI to tackle this issue. Definitely, and I'm really excited to see all these new startups tackling these problems. And you're right, a lot more VCs are investing in the space now, which is really really cool to see. Thank you, Gianluca, for joining us on Meta Talks and uh, sharing your background and what you're doing at AI Academy and all your insights. Super interesting. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Meta Talks. To learn more about our work at Meta, head to our website, meta.partners. This is where you can find our blog, our LinkedIn page, and more information about the team. If you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future shows, reach out to us on Twitter at Meta Talks, all one word. The team is on there as well. <laughs>